Welcome back to Why This Universe. If you're familiar with our show, you probably know that Dan tends to pick up most of the heavy lifting with regards to these explanations. After all, he's been in this field much longer than I have, right? How long have you been doing physics? Uh, I started grad school 21 years ago. Okay, cool. So I started grad school a couple months ago, so that's about the difference. But today's going to be a little different because we're going to be talking about the topic of my current research as a graduate student. And that's this exciting class of theoretical particles called axions. Axions are a really exciting area of research right now. It has a lot to do with maybe how our universe works and maybe how our universe came to be the way it is. And they might even have something to do with the dark matter. So you may notice a lot of maybes in there. After all, we haven't actually discovered axions yet. But today I'm going to explain why physicists are paying so much attention to this class of theoretical particles. You're listening to Why This Universe, a podcast where we break down the biggest ideas in physics. My name is Shalma, and I'm a PhD student at NYU. And I'm Dan Hooper. I'm a theoretical astrophysicist at Fermilab and at the University of Chicago. In general, in physics, it tends to be that if something is physically possible, like if there's no law of physics saying that something can't happen, then it probably does happen, you know, at least sometimes or at least somewhere in the universe. My favorite example of this is thinking about black holes. So originally, black holes were just this weird solution of Einstein's equation, this thing that seemed physically allowed, but really unlikely to actually exist. But now we know that they do exist, and they exist all over the universe. So our topic today comes from an open problem in physics, where something seems totally physically allowed, and yet no matter how hard we look for it, we just don't seem to find it. So I'm talking about something called the strong CP problem. So this problem relates to a kind of symmetry called charge parity symmetry. So this is a combination of two things. The first one is charge. So imagine that we just have a couple particles and all of the ones that are positively charged, we change them to negatively charged particles with the same you know, amount of charge. And for all the negatively charged particles, they become positively charged. So if that system behaves the same way that it did originally, that would mean that the system has charge symmetry. And similarly, parity symmetry comes in if we take a mirror image of the entire system of particles. So if the system of particles behaves the same way, whether or not it's mirror image flip, that would be parity symmetry. So charge parity symmetry is what happens when we combine those two and we say, for our system of particles, let's flip all the charges, so negative to positive and positive to negative, and let's take a mirror image at the same time. So, you know, before and after we do that charge flipping and parity flipping, if our system acts the same way, then our system is charge parity symmetric. So, in general, we know that this charge parity symmetry is actually broken in nature. So, for example, the weak force, the fundamental force that guides particle decays and things like that, that violates the CP symmetry. But the weird thing is that the strong force, a different fundamental force, just doesn't seem to violate the CP symmetry, even though it totally could according to the physical laws that we know. 
The way we actually measure this is by looking at the electric dipole moment of the neutron. So in principle, the neutron could have a pretty big electric dipole moment, by which I mean its charges that are carried by its constituent quarks could kind of be positive on one side and negative on the other side. But the more we try to measure this, we just don't see any evidence there's any electric dipole moment at all to the neutron. Uh, the current constraints are like 10 to the minus 26 or smaller. And that means that for some reason, this CP violation and the strong for force is just really, you know, very, very close to zero, unmeasurably small. And like Shalma said, there's, we have no explanation for that, at least in the context of the standard model of particle physics. Yeah, so this non-violation of the CP symmetry by the strong force, it's it's really strange, even if it doesn't sound like that. Like, it boils down to just this one number in the theory. It's sort of like an angle, and it could have any value between 0 and 360 degrees, and yet it just happens to be really close to 0, like unexplainably close. It's just a weird coincidence. Yeah, to put it in, in numbers, we know that this angle, we call it theta, the theta angle, has to be about a billionth of a degree or smaller, which there's no reason to think it should have been that way. It's, it seems like a very peculiar choice that nature made, and we're looking for an explanation. Yeah, some people refer to this as fine-tuning. Like It's like you're fine-tuning your theory to just have this angle be very close to zero with no real explanation for why it should be. It's like if you took a wine bottle, an empty wine bottle, you dropped a small marble into it, and it could roll around the, the kind of ring in the bottom of the, the glass bottle. And it's as if that just rolled around for a while and it stopped in the exactly northmost part of the wine bottle to within one billionth of a degree. I mean, it's possible that could happen, but it does seem like an incredible coincidence. And as a physicist, it makes me wonder what the explanation for that coincidence is. So this is this big open problem in physics, but it turns out that someone has come up with a pretty clever solution. So in 1977, these two people, Roberto Pecci and Helen Quinn, came up with a solution called the Pecci-Quinn solution, you know, named after themselves. The idea is kind of technical, but they basically add another term to this theory of the strong force. And this extra term provides a way that this angle naturally gets driven towards the value zero. So it makes this result make sense, and it makes this seem like less of just a very strange coincidence. Pecci and Quinn's solution to this problem is kind of like if you take that wine bottle I described before, and you gently tip it towards the north. Now you have a reason for why of all the potential directions or locations in that ring at the bottom of the wine bottle that the, the marble could wind up in, you, you have a reason for why it's going to wind up in the north part of that bottle to almost arbitrary precision. But even more interestingly, and as a consequence of this theory, it turns out that this solution to the CP problem could solve totally different problems in physics as well, including possibly the problem of what dark matter is. So a little bit after Pecci and Quinn proposed their solution, two other physicists, Frank Wilczek and Steven Weinberg, showed that this solution gives rise to a completely new kind of particle, what we now call the axion. 
So the name actually comes from a brand of laundry detergent. This was, a, there was a New York Times article. <laughs> I never where, knew this. Yeah, where Wilczek once said in an interview that a few years before a supermarket display of brightly colored boxes of a laundry detergent named Axion just caught his eye. And it just occurred to him that that would be a good name for a theoretical physics particle. I hope the advertising executive <laughs> who came up with that detergent that that yeah. logo or whatever is getting well paid. <laughs> that seems like yeah. a pretty good job. It's a very inspiring laundry detergent, and he luckily had the opportunity to name a new particle after it. So, <laughs> wonder if it's still a detergent. I feel like I've seen it before, but I'm not. I don't think it's super popular. Will check's kind of a odd duck, I guess. <laughs> So it turns out in this theory of axions that whatever the axion mass is, it scales with how much the axion interacts with other known matter. So a lighter axion would interact a lot less with other matter than a heavier axion would. And so the first version of the axion theory predicted an axion that interacted strongly with other matter. So this would have been on the heavier side of the possible axion mass range. The problem was that if axions did interact that much with the normal matter, then we should have seen signs of them in the particle physics experiments that were going on, and we didn't. We hadn't seen any experimental hints or signals of axions yet, so people kind of gave up on that model. The second edition of the axion theory had what we call invisible axions, so these are much lighter and barely interact with normal matter, which is why they're called invisible. So by now there are lots of different axion theories, not just two, but like basically there's an entire mass range, an entire parameter space that these particles could have. And physicists have found these theories appealing enough that there are now people considering axion-like particles that no longer even solve the CP problem, but they still have some of the characteristics of axions. So this is really, by now, it's a, it's a large category of theoretical particles. And there are arguments from string theory being made these days saying there might not just be one or two of these kinds of particles, but there could be a, you know tens or hundreds or thousands of different axion-like states, all really light and all really feebly interacting, that might really exist in our universe. I don't know how much weight to give those arguments, but like serious smart people are making them these days. And one of the most promising reasons to study axions and why people love them so much is that some axions and axion-like particles make really good dark matter candidates. Physicists love when something designed to solve one problem can actually solve many, and axions are a great example of that. So they can solve this dark matter problem hypothetically, but they can also solve the strong CP problem with the strong force that has you know, riddled us for so many decades now. So if you were to survey all the theoretical physicists out there and ask what their opinions were on dark matter, and uh, I think you'd find that quite a few people would be happy to put their money down on the axion. If axions exist, and if they were to make up the dark matter, physicists will ask the same question that they would ask about any dark matter candidate, which is, how and when would this be created in the universe? Most of the common dark matter candidates that physicists study would have been produced in the early universe through something called thermal production. 
The idea is that when the universe was really young and hot, particles were colliding with each other all the time and at very high energies. In these collisions, some dark matter would be produced, and so when the universe got older and started to expand and cool, the dark matter was left alone to survive to this day. So that's the mechanism by which a lot of the common dark matter candidates would be produced in the universe. But the problem is that these invisible axions that we're talking about interact so infrequently with matter that this mechanism wouldn't create enough of them to make up the dark matter. So that doesn't mean that they are rolled out as a dark matter candidate. It just means that we have to think of new and different ways that these axions could be produced. One idea is something called the misalignment mechanism. Fancy name, pretty jargony, but here's the idea. If a particle starts out in a state with some potential energy, think a ball about to roll down a tall mountain, and then that particle moves towards that lower energy state, like at the bottom of the mountain, the potential energy released during that process can actually be released in the form of new particles, including axions. So going back to our wine bottle analogy, when you tip that wine bottle and your marble starts rolling down towards the lowest part of that wine bottle circle, that potential energy that the marble loses as it rolls down the wine bottle's ring, uh, that gets converted into something. And in this case, it actually goes into the production of new axions. So it turns out that uh, where your marble starts in that ring determines how many of these axions you make. But for typical values of this, this angle, this, this quantus free parameter, uh, you find that you get about the right amount of axions to account for all the dark matter if the axion is roughly uh, 10 to the minus 5 electron volts, or very, very light particle. It would make it the lightest particle we know of other than the photon and gluon, which have exactly no mass. So that's the misalignment mechanism. But there's another idea of how axions could get made as well. And that's through the decay of things called topological defects. Again, lots of weird names in this episode, but this one is actually a very strange kind of object. They're not particles. Instead, they're kind of built into the weird shape of the vacuum and weirdness that happens when symmetries get broken, like the tipping of the wine bottle. But these things that we call axion strings actually get formed and they're a type of topological defect, but they don't live very long. And when they're done and when they disappear, they can convert a lot of their energy into axions. Again, maybe accounting for the dark matter. If the axions are really light in this like 10 to the minus five or so electron volt mass range. If the axion were even lighter, we think you'd make too much of it and you'd have way too much dark matter. If the axion were much heavier, we think you'd have even less axions and not enough to make up the dark matter of our universe. So we talked about how axions are this really powerful theoretical tool, but what's it like to search for axions? Have we seen any hints of them? So it turns out that it's really hard to search for axions because they interact with matter so infrequently like we were talking about. So most axion experiments and searches focus on this one interaction that can happen within a magnetic field. So in a magnetic field, an axion could actually turn into a photon or a particle of light. And similarly, a photon could turn into an axion. So this is called the Primakov effect. So this could happen in the cores of stars and places like that where there are these hot astrophysical plasmas. 
So there are lots of experiments looking for signals of this sort, so a photon that presumably came from an axion. So one experiment is called the Axion Dark Matter Experiment, or ADMX, at the University of Washington. They use a strong magnetic field to try to detect dark matter axions in the Milky Way's dark matter halo. And so they haven't found axion signals yet, but they do help us close in on the axion models that are still viable. Another experiment is Haystack, or the Halo Scope at Yale, Sensitive to Axion Cold Dark Matter. Kind of a crazy acronym. I like the acronym. <laughs> By the way, if we're talking about dark matter axion acronyms, there's a really good one. Abracadabra. Neither here nor there, but it's the most ridiculous (laughs) physics acronym I've ever heard. And it's it's amazing that they even came up with it. What does it stand for? Yeah, no one one can remember. Let me see. A broadband resonant approach to cosmic axion detection with an amplifying B-field ring apparatus. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely unnecessary. (laughs) I think they really amused themselves with that name. Uh Uh-huh. So I mentioned that axions could be made in the cores of stars through that Primakov process. So it turns out that that leads to some fun ideas. The thing I'm working on this semester is with Ken Van Tilburg at NYU. And his idea is that if the sun is creating axions, maybe some of those axions are getting caught in bound orbits around the sun. So this would be called a stellar basin and this basin would grow as more axions are being emitted and could possibly give off a detectable signal. So most of those axions that the sun would make would just fly off forever into space, right? Yeah. You're talking about the small fraction who's yeah. who caught in the sun's gravity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mo- so most of the, the particles, like photons that the sun produces, they just go off, off to infinity, but some of them could coalesce in clumps and just travel around the sun like that. Yeah. So we could be living in a big cloud of axions right now. Yeah. And if we are living in a cloud of axions, we might be able to see signs of it. If some of those axions are turning into photons, they might leave a signal in some of the telescopes we already have running. So that's what we're looking for in my research. And even if we don't find a signal, studying it and looking for it helps us place limits on the axion theories that we know could be viable. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's really exciting to get to talk to you directly about the active research that's going on in physics right now. And if you want to engage with us more, we have a Twitter account. You can search at WhyThisUniverse. And feel free to tweet at us with your comments, reactions, suggestions, what you want to hear next. We appreciate all kinds of feedback. This episode was produced and edited by me, Shalma Wegsman. Research and writing is done by Dan Hooper and I. Dan is a theoretical physicist at Fermilab and the University of Chicago and is the author of many books, including most recently, At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's First Seconds. All music in Why This Universe is produced by Jake Kleinbaum. Thank you so much for your support and for listening, and we hope you tune in next time to Why This Universe.